It's time to talk with Michael Mulligan, legally speaking, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Absolutely. Civil disobedience offenses. You and I have had a number of discussions about this over the last year and a half, certainly relevant with what we're seeing in our nation's capital, as well as other active proceedings. Where do we start today? Well, you're, you're quite right. I expect we're going to be seeing more of these. Um, and uh, I wanted to talk about uh, some of the background in terms of what's going on right now uh, in terms of prosecuting people for uh, criminal contempt uh, for activity involving uh, blockages at Ferry Creek, uh, because those prosecutions are now underway, uh, and we are likely to see other ones related to matters including uh, what's been going on with the truckers in Ottawa and elsewhere. And so uh, the Ferry Creek prosecutions are interesting. They're now something in excess of 400 people uh, who are charged uh, with uh, uh, criminal contempt. Uh, and those matters are now being worked through the uh, court process. Uh, and the way that's happening uh, is interesting and different from how uh, other offenses might be prosecuted in court dealing with a smaller number of individuals. And so what's been happening uh, is that there have been uh, these mass first appearance lists created in the Supreme Court in Nanaimo, with, uh, in some cases, more than 100 people uh, all having to appear uh, to begin the criminal uh, contempt process. Uh, that's been made more challenging because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a matter of 100 and something people a day showing up uh, physically at the courthouse You've got all of these people appearing virtually, right, by MS Teams or telephone or whatever they has been arranged. Uh, and so that has created challenges in terms of uh, keeping the matters on track. Uh, and uh, the way they're being approached is the uh, Crown is seeking to prosecute the people essentially in groups of five or ten people each, based on the date that they were arrested hmm. uh, and what they're intending to do are to schedule trials each for a period of five days just back to back uh, with the uh, group of people who were arrested on each day uh, and that's not unusual in the sense that the criminal law often contemplates people who are charged with a, a similar offense or a offense where the evidence would be common to try them together as a matter of efficiency and so the idea is that, look, if you're going to have, uh, you know, five or ten police officers come and testify about what they did on a particular day, much of that is going to be common for the group of people who were arrested on that day. So that's the theory of it. Uh, and so trials are being scheduled essentially back-to-back -back in five-day incre increments with uh, little gaps uh, all the way through to August of 2023. Uh, just because there are a lot of people to be dealt with. Wow, yeah. Um, and then that's creating other issues. Um, for example, many of the people who are involved with it don't have uh, much experience in terms of how the criminal justice system uh, operates. Uh, and so um, Legal Aid BC um, developed uh, back at the time of the uh, Stanley Cup riots what they describe as a mass arrest policy, which is designed to provide a uh, means for sort of summary advice, at least, uh, to hundreds of people who were arrested at the same time. And an interesting part of that background is apparently the people who were charged in the Stanley Cup riot and indeed in the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, uh, contempt proceedings had money. 
huh. many of them. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's a function of what it costs to go to a hockey game these days. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, it can't be cheap, especially if it's a Stanley Cup playoffs. No, that's right. If you've managed to get a hockey ticket to the Stanley Cup playoffs, probably you're not eligible for legal aid coverage. Indeed. <laughs> um, and so uh, in those cases, it didn't turn out to be a large number of people who couldn't afford counsel. That doesn't appear to be the case in the Ferry Creek uh, context, uh, where now there have been apparently the status like 266 people uh, have applied for some form of legal aid assistance, everything from uh, a lawyer to just some summary advice. And so Legal Aid BC is trying to provide, at the very least, sort of an hour or something on a telephone with a lawyer to explain the process and so the person can decide if they're pleading guilty or not guilty, just to sort of keep the thing uh, moving. Uh, And then what Legal Aid BC has decided to do is, because there are so many people uh, involved, they have suspended what they ordinarily would permit, which is people to try to retain any lawyer who would be prepared to act for them on legal aid rates. Mm -hmm. And so instead, Legal Aid BC has hired a team of 13 or 14 uh, lawyers who are prepared to act on legal aid rates. And for people who are financially eligible, they'll give them sort of that hour on the telephone. And then if they're proceeding, they will assign them uh, to one of the lawyers. So you would have uh, a lawyer assigned to you uh, if you are financially eligible. The Rainforest Flying Squad, for their uh, uh, part, apparently has some form of a legal coordinator. They've, of course, been soliciting donations, and it appears what they are doing is covering, uh, paying for legal defenses for people based on their background. In terms of somebody is black, person of color, or indigenous, the Rainforest Flying Squad may choose to pay for their lawyer. Hmm. Uh, But apparently for others, they're not. Oh, uh, And so you wind up with this uh, circumstance where some of the people can afford counsel, some based on their background, maybe getting counsel paid for by the Rainforest Flying Squad, yeah. or other people who uh, don't have any money uh, and would be eligible for legal aid. And that threshold in BC is extremely low uh, because of the uh, really limited budget of uh, legal aid BC. Yeah. Um, essentially, if you have a, a full-time job at minimum wage, you're too rich <laughs> to get legal aid coverage. Yeah, uh, And so uh, that's what's been happening there. Interesting. The other thing which has taken place is that the uh, provincial crown, who's doing the prosecutions uh, of these matters, and we've talked about some of that tension uh, that's been going on in terms of the court, quote, inviting, close quote, crown counsel to take over uh uh, criminal contempt prosecutions. Yes. The Crown is prosecuting uh, these cases. Uh, and so the Crown has developed a, uh, a formula or a grid of sentencing positions uh, in these cases. Hmm. And what that means is this. The, the Crown doesn't decide what sentence a person would receive. Ultimately, that's a decision for a, a judge, mm-hmm. not a prosecutor. But the prosecutor's position on sentence might be given some significant consideration, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if there was agreement with defense, then it's even uh, there's an even higher bar for a judge to depart from a sentence that's agreed to. Makes sense, yeah. And so because there are so many people, and in BC we've developed, unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of law surrounding <laughs> how do we sentence people uh, for criminal contempt. And much of this goes back to like we've got court of appeal decisions yeah. going back to like McMillan Blodell, yep. Backwater Sound, yep. cases Trans Mountain Pipeline. <sighs> and there's a pile of law surrounding it, um, and so 
the Crown, looking at all that, uh, has tried to develop uh, a sentencing position taking into account some of the principles from those previous cases. Interesting. Um, now, that's interesting as well. I mean, this is a, a sort of a, one of the key lines from the BC Court of Appeal from back in two, 1994 dealing with the Macmillan Blodell circumstance, Clackwatt. And it says, you know, it talks about some of the people who were appealing their sentence to the Court of Appeal having uh, apologized to the court for embarrassment or inconvenience, but pointing out that a breach of the court order is not a crime against the judge. It's not a matter of inconvenience that it, in fact, is in the language is an attack upon the institution itself, which is an institution that stands between the rule of law and anarchy. Hmm. And so it's not a matter of just, look, I'm apologizing to being, you know, an inconvenience for Judge X. It's not Judge X that we're concerned about. Uh, it's the long-term effect on the rule of law yes. and what that means if people are just not following the law when they don't like it. Um, and so uh, there's this mountain of law now surrounding what, how sentences are to be determined. And so the Crown's sentencing position, and they've tried to formalize it, it sounds like, because there are just so many people, right, that are being dealt with here, involves a consideration of things like when did the contempt allegedly occur? Hmm. The idea there, and this comes out of those cases as well, is that uh, people who continue to engage in criminal contempt, um, when it's been made clear you can't do this, the sentences are to ramp up, right? Yes. And so people who engage in the conduct later may be subject to a uh, longer sentence than somebody who did it at the outset before there was a clear message that, hey, this is going to be a criminal contempt, not just some civil contempt trying to get you in compliance with the order. And then the other interesting thing that is developed uh, based on these previous cases, including the Trans Mountain Pipeline, is that there's a line of authority dealing with the uh, use of and the complexity of devices used by people to, you know, glue themselves to the ground. Yeah, sleeping or, dragons, or yeah. Tri yeah, sleeping dragons or tripods or yeah. various things. And there's been a change in terms of the use of those things. And yes. it's apparent when you look back at like the Clackwatt protests, where the court described the protesters there as those who blocked the road each day did so peacefully and passively. Yeah. And other people stood by and sang, <laughs> right? Yeah. And now uh, that's developed to people with sleeping dragons and tubes of crazy glue and people building pylons and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And, there's authority for the proposition that doing those things significantly increases the appropriate range of sentence. Hmm. This isn't just somebody who's, you know, stood out on the road singing a song. No. You're somebody who's planned this. You've brought equipment. You've uh, made yourself difficult to remove. That sort of is an indication of, right, sort of uh, planning and, you know, contemptuous behavior, which is deserving of greater punishment. And so... One of the stats is that in the Trans Mountain Pipeline case, only 1% of the people charged use any form of device at all to make themselves more difficult to remove. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Ferry Creek, the percentage is 84%. Wow. And what that's led to are the, is the Crown taking sentencing positions that are in accordance with previous authority, where that was considered to be a significant aggravating factor, Right. You're not the, you know, grandma on the road singing Kumbaya. You're somebody who's, you know, encased yourself in concrete and tied yourself up on a pole so the police have to spend an hour chopping you down and <laughs> dragging you away. Yeah. Uh, and so what that's meant is that many of the sentencing positions that the Crown has articulated reflect that 
law that's developed in terms of that being an aggravating factor. And as well, uh, the uh, courts have said that complex devices are to be viewed sort of as a more serious thing. It was more planning, more difficult to remove, takes more time, right? Yeah. Uh, than some simple device. And so, for example, somebody who, uh, you know, tied themselves with a piece of rope to a tree or something might be dealt with differently than somebody who shows up with the, you know, some kind of a contraption <laughs> that makes it much more difficult to get them out of there. Uh, and so that can then lead to issues about was this a simple device or a complex device and how long did it take the person, how long did it take the police to extract you? And, uh, you know, some of the accused would be saying, well, hold on, you know, this was some inexperienced officer who wasn't uh, familiar with, uh, you know, the extraction. So it's your first time. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's your first time disassembling <sighs> the tripod. Uh, and then the Crown has also taken a position whereby their sentencing position would differ depending on when somebody pled guilty. Huh. The idea being they would have, it sounds like in most cases, yeah. three different positions. Like if you plead guilty within a number of days of getting disclosure material, they might say seven days in jail. And if you plead guilty um, before the trial, 30 days in jail. Or if you plead guilty after the trial commences, 60 days in jail. And in some cases, quite stark differences. Like in some cases, everything from a fine, if you plead guilty right now, <laughs> to a jail sentence, if you pled guilty or were found, you know, pled guilty later. I suspect there may be some consideration given to whether there should be uh, quite that much disparity. Yeah. And no doubt the Crown's taking these positions, again, looking at all of this authority from other cases <laughs> right, that have gone before it. Uh, but and I should say there is it's legitimate for the there to be a reduction in sentence for somebody who chooses to plead uh, guilty at an early stage. Yes, because it shows remorse, right? It can, uh, you know, there can be some consideration of uh, you know saving of resources. But ordinarily, you might see a reduction of you know a third, for mm-hmm. example. It's not a not a mathematical proposition. Yeah, but it's not ordinarily the case that if somebody pled guilty, they might get seven days and you might go to jail for quadruple that if you had a trial yeah. or a fa- or pled guilty later. There may be some issue about whether the disparity between the sentences is, uh, or at least the Crown sentencing position is an appropriate uh, approach. But again, they're trying to base it on these previous cases. And of course, the Crown is motivated by trying to reduce this sort of pig in the python, right, of 400 people <laughs> all waiting for trial. Yeah, uh, And so you wind up now with sentencing positions. The Crown sentencing positions range from, in some cases, a $500 fine, something like that, or probation. Those might be people at the early end before the matter was sort of uh, uh, turned into a, a criminal contempt prosecution for everyone uh, to, uh, you know, sentences of 90 days in jail or more. Uh, and uh, apparently many of the people involved uh, were startled to find out that uh, they were going to be uh, potentially subject to, uh, you know, jail sentences of some significant length. Yeah. The the sort of message being spread uh, apparently in the woods, maybe by the rainforest flying squad people, um, didn't include <laughs> the warning on the package that, oh. hey, you might be going to jail for a few months. Yeah. Uh, and so many of the people apparently are startled to find out that this may not be some rap on the knuckles. Uh, it may be a significant period of time in jail, which for somebody without a previous record may be a rude awakening. And you can imagine if somebody couldn't go to their job for three months and uh, might you might have people losing their housing and employment if they have it, 
um, uh, as a uh, as a result. And so, I think many of the people that are now finding out how the criminal justice system treats criminal contempt, bearing in mind that it's not simply a matter of causing some inconvenience to a judge, nor is it uh, sort of treated like some other offense might be. Like if you had a person with no record who, I don't know, committed mischief and broke something, right? You're probably not starting off with, well, we need to send them to jail for a period of time. No. But criminal contempt is uh, viewed differently because of the need to uh, not only deter the individual, but to generally deter other people from continuing to behave in that conduct. Yeah. It can, it, it, that is to say, in breach of a court order. Uh, and it is clear uh, that the uh, court will simply increase again and again and again the sentences being imposed until compliance is achieved. Yeah. Uh, because not doing so uh, amounts to a uh, acknowledgement of anarchy. Yeah. Right, and and we just do not want to live in a world where you can sort of force your will on the majority if you are uh, want to go out and block something. Yeah. Um, and I guess one of the other messages that really needs to get out there is that protesting is legitimate mm-hmm. uh, and encouraged as part of a healthy democracy. But engaging in a protest or strongly believing something affords you no legal right to break the law or breach a court order, Yeah. right? And yeah. I've heard interviews of people who are engaged like in the current blockades uh, in Ottawa. And it's sort of the, the message people seem to be saying, oh, well, you know, I'm protesting, so I'm allowed to block the road. No, you're not. Uh, the fact that your road blockage or your blockage of the logging road or the port or the train line or whatever might be uh, as part of an effort to protest something you feel strongly about affords you no authority, additional authority to do that. If you're not permitted to block the border crossing, blocking the border crossing because you're protesting is no defense. Uh, And so I don't know that that is clear for people, and it should be. Uh, and it's also very unfortunate if the um, information being given to people who are, uh, and many of them young people, uh, asked to engage in this kind of uh, activity, if they are somehow being given the message that, oh, this is going to be dealt with in some lenient fashion, or somehow because it's a protest, that's going to make it okay, or, you know, don't worry about it, that is seriously mistaken, uh, because uh, the expected sentences are likely to be ever-increasing jail sentences. Yeah. Uh, and so that's where people are going to wind up uh, if their method of protest involves breaching a court order. All right. Uh, and so I hope people get that uh, yeah. so that we uh, don't have uh, 800 people uh, in this circumstance next year. Nope. And I think things are going to change after Ottawa as well. I need to get our break in. We're a little late. So we'll be back in just a moment with Legally Speaking Michael Mulligan after this. All right, we're back on the air here at CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan. Michael, you and I have three and a half minutes left in our segment today. My apologies. It's just what you were saying before was so interesting. I was just listening very carefully, and I totally missed our break, so we're a little late. But we do have three and a half minutes left. No trouble. Well, I guess there's an unfortunate wealth of law surrounding uh, civil disobedience and contempt prosecutions in B.C. (laughs) I was just going to laugh. It's one of our exports is jurisprudence on civil disobedience. That's true. We we have it. We have it in. Uh, we have copious amounts of it. It's appellate uh, authority. We have all kinds of. Things. We can ship it to Ontario. They can make good use of it there. Right? Absolutely. Um, there's another case I think I can mention in the sort of 
two and a half minutes remaining. Yeah. It's a case out of Port Alberni. It's a case involving a uh, claim for defamation uh, brought by the Port Alberni Shelter Society and a couple of the executive director and another employee there suing the Literacy Alberti Society uh, and the executive director of that association. Hmm. And the background of it is that uh, the executive director and the organization of the Port Alberti Shelter Society alleged that the executive director of the Literacy Society had been making defamatory statements about them, claiming misuse of funds and enriching themselves and causing the opioid crisis, all kinds of untrue statements. Uh, And so they sued. And when you sue somebody, you would serve them with a notice that you are suing them. And the notice will include, in no uncertain terms, your obligation to respond to that or else you lose. And in this case, they served the Literacy Society, but the Literacy Society and the director showed up The director showed up once briefly in court and then did nothing to defend the claims, uh, resulting in a default judgment uh, against the Literacy Society and its director for some $345,000. Wow. Uh, and the Literacy Society, both of these are nonprofits, applied to try to set aside that order, claiming that it was somehow a miscarriage of justice. That's to say the executive or the board of directors directed that that happen unsuccessfully. And the reason they were unsuccessful in that um, is that uh, the uh, organization isn't able to get off the hook uh, because the uh, director in this case failed to do what uh, he should have done, which would be hire a lawyer and show up and defend the thing. And the fact that the uh, executive director of the Literacy Society, who had been making these statements, misled the board of directors about uh, what he was doing and claiming that, oh, I'm taking care of this, uh, none of that uh, is a a basis to overturn, ultimately, the default judgment that was issued. Uh, And so the takeaway message for people is really, when you're served with a notice of this kind of a a claim, any claim, don't stick your head in the ground. If you... uh, ostrich, the result is going to be, in all probability, you lose. Uh, And if you come along later and try to overturn your loss, you may well be unsuccessful. And as is apparent in this case, uh, an organization can be responsible for the conduct of its employees, in this case, the director, uh, who was sending out these untrue uh, claims, including using company email. Uh, And so uh, the message is, when you're served with something, you need to respond to it. Ignoring it won't work, and don't expect you'll be able to just fix it later. And so that's going to be the unfortunate takeaway for the Literacy Society of uh, Alberni. They're in the hole for a substantial amount of money to the other nonprofit as a result of what their uh, director did. Michael Mulligan, pleasure as always. Until next week. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Perfect. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking.